you have a copy of the scriptures, you can turn your Bible to the book of James. We're going to look at chapter 1 and verses 2 through 4. And while you're turning there, I, uh, I'm actually pretty nervous. I'm usually not super nervous when I preach. And part of that is because I, I had a different text that I was preparing to preach up until yesterday. Uh, it's actually a parallel text to this one in, in Romans chapter 5. And uh, I, I just was aware my burden for this congregation is I've just been aware of so many trials and sufferings among the body. Uh, we, we, we just prayed for one, the Bankus family. I know of, 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 of quite a few members who have lost loved ones recently. I know of members that are struggling with infertility. And, and, and that's just to name a few of the host of afflictions and trials and sufferings that I, can, I, I know of and can only imagine are going on in this body. And so I was all prepared with Romans 5 to, to comfort and, and console the suffering. And then in the midnight hour, the Lord led me to a different passage, this passage in James, which, which actually exhorts the suffering. And so you can imagine if I know all these people that are suffering, the last thing I want to do is, is tell you what you should do. Um, and, 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 and do a text that I, I think is, is, yeah, is, but I trust that God's wisdom is not my wisdom, that his ways are not my ways, and I trust that God's word is able to do what he sends it forth to accomplish. And so I want to preach to you uh, James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. And after I read it, I'll pray, and then I want to give some, some opening statements about James, and then we're going we're gonna to dive in head first. And so James chapter 1, starting in verse 2, says this, Count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds, knowing that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect so that you might be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Let's pray. Father, we do come to you, and I, I am trembling, not, not because I'm scared of your word, or not because I'm, I'm, I'm scared that, that, that you lack power or sovereignty, but because, God, I am just burdened that you would use your word to comfort and encourage and challenge your people. That, that we would be joyfully conformed more and more into the image and likeness of Christ. That we as your people would embrace this truth that, that is only true. It is only possible by faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone. And so, Father, as we think about just how radical these verses are, I pray that not only would you make it clear, but that you would give your people the ability to joyfully obey and submit and be conformed to your glorious word. I pray that you would comfort those hearts that are hurting and maybe are tempted to think that this isn't the word for them. Would you meet them in their pain for your glory? Lastly, I just pray, Lord, and I... I I love this passage. I'm so thankful that you've given it to us in your word. I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be acceptable in your sight, O oh Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. 
I don't know if you know this about me, but I, I love to play sports, and, um, and many people that know me might know that I, I enjoy playing basketball. And even though I, I love to play basketball, in high school, basketball wasn't my best sport. My, my favorite sport was track. And, and, and I love watching track and field, particularly I love watching it now when you get to the stage of like the Olympics or the world championships where you're seeing the best of the best. And here's why I love it, particularly watching sprinting, is because to be a good sprinter, yes, you have to be fast, but, but you have to have good form. And in order to finish the race and to really win the race, to be the best of the best, you have to be able to hold and keep that form all the way through the race. If you go up and you YouTube and you watch races, you can see, if you know what you're looking at, you can tell those, those runners that at the last 20 or 30 meters of the race, they begin to lose their form and they begin to falter. And, and usually that costs them the race. And in order to maintain good form, you need two things. You need strength and you need endurance. Believe it or not, I know as many of you might think of your athletes out there, none of us usually run with good form. You know, if you watch that person running down the road, you see elbows swinging like this. If you run like that, I'm sorry to tell you, that is not good form. And you are working way harder than you need to be. But in order to have good form, you actually have to have strength. You, you, that's why when you look at sprinters, a lot of them are built. And it's because you need physical strength to be able to keep your body in the right movements as you're running 100 or 200 or 400 meters. There has to be strength. And yet you also need endurance. You, you need the ability to maintain that strength throughout the course of the race. And so when I was running track, if, if I was going to run a 200, I would usually have to run 400 meters or 800 meters. If you don't know, 200 meters is halfway around the track. 400 meters is a full lap around the track. And 800 meters is two laps around the track. And a mile is four. And so I would usually have to run a whole lap or two laps or four laps around the track just to build up my endurance so that in that last 10 meters, when I'm trying to get ahead, I can push and win the race. And this, this analogy of track, it isn't just me trying to talk about myself, it really is a picture of this Christian life that all of us have to live, this race that we're running called life. And, and if we would endure to the end, if we, would, if we would be shaped and molded the way God is calling us to be shaped and molded, we must have strength and endurance. And so I want to show you from the book of James, I have two points, and they really just, they, they just, they, these points are, are really just the flow of the text. You can see it in verse 2 and in verse 4. In verse 2, we have the command, consider it all joy. That's the first point. And in verse 4, we have the second command, let steadfastness have its effect. And so I want us to walk through this passage and really consider how this passage would exhort us and encourage us and challenge us as we all suffer. But before I do that, a little background on James. James has historically been a very disputed book. It's historically been a book that some would even say does not deserve to be in the Bible. 
Because if you read James, there isn't a lot of, of explicit theology, right? You can't find a doctrine of the church, or, or you don't see this explicit mention of Christ and, 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 and the cross in, in, the gospel, in, in, in the book of James. But that does not mean that De James isn't deeply theological. And it does not mean that, as some people have suggested, that James isn't a book that talks about the realities and the depths of gospel faith. When you read James, you should read it kind of like a New Testament Proverbs. It's a book that's action-packed and filled with a lot of action statements, and that's because James was written to a particular people at a particular time and doing particular trials. And James's concern is that these people who have professed their faith, they trust in Jesus, that that faith would lead to a Christ-like character. You see, you see, James was really concerned about what we see a lot in our day and age, that there are many people who can name the name of Jesus, and yet when you look at their lives, you say, no Jesus in their lives. And so James, if you want to say, well, where is faith? Faith is this. If we broaden our definition of faith to understand that faith is trusting in the character of God and the purpose of God, then you see that, that James is deeply theological. And this reality of faith is all through its passages. And if you've been a Christian for a long time, you should know that the character of God and the purpose of God, purposes of God find crystal clarity in the person and work of Jesus Christ. God's character is, no clear, is, is nowhere else more clearly seen than as the scriptures, as we just read it in Colossians, Colossians 1.15, he who is in the image of the invisible God. No other place do you see an exact representation of the Father as you see in Hebrews 3 with him who is the exact image, the imprint of his nature in Christ. And so as you read through James, James is assuming that you know these things. And he wants to get right down to the practicality, but are you living these things? And so James is an immensely theological book. It's an immensely important book because it challenges us, not just do we have head knowledge, not do we just ascend to the right thing, not do we just come to church on Sundays and do a bunch of things, but James challenges and says, does the faith that you proclaim, that you claim to be in, is that faith evident in the way that you live your life. And I would argue that one of the chief struggles for us to show the reality of Christ is in our, in our life is in our suffering. And I want to challenge you and help you and by God's grace comfort you as we think about how we can glorify and show forth the reality of our true faith in Christ as we suffer. And so let's look at verse 2. Notice what it says here. Paul, uh, I'm going to say Paul a lot because I've been studying Romans 5 for the last two weeks. So if I do, just insert James. <laughs> In James chapter 2, it says, Count it all joy, my brothers and sisters. And right off the bat, if you're suffering, imagine suffering and imagine somebody walks up to you and says, you should count it all joy. 
A, I would just rebuke that person and say that this is not where you start when you're counseling someone in suffering. You might want to start with a hug or tears or I'm sorry. But at some point in the course of that suffering, you have to get to this place where it says, count it all joy. And you might hear that and say, well, man, that just seems harsh. Like, why would you call someone to count it all joy, notice the rest of the text, when you meet trials of various kinds? Why, why should I count it all joy as I'm meeting various trials? And, and I want to help us to understand this because it's often misapplied because people don't take time to really understand the terms that are being used. And so first we see this term, count it. This term count, it, it also could be said as, as reckon or consider. It's, it's a term that is meant to call forth thinking. It's a term that is, that is meant to, to, to let the reader know that what he's after here is not necessarily how you feel, but how you're thinking. And so as he says, count it all joy, he's not saying that you should be feeling like Pharrell says, happy, and you should walk around smiling through all of your suffers. What he's after is, I, I'm concerned. He's concerned with how you're thinking in the midst of your sufferings. And just as a pastor, this is where so many people go wrong. As, the, as soon as suffering starts, thinking goes out of the window, and we, all we do is feel. And this is my burden, because we live in a culture where we're taught how to feel. We're taught to feel more than we're taught to think. When you look at even, I don't want to get into politics, but when you even get into politics and all that's happening, so many of the arguments out here are how people feel. And there, there, there's, there's no thinking about the things that people are saying and considering. And so James starts off with consider it, and he says all joy. And this word all is not modifying the object. It's not, it's not modifying the things. It's modifying the joy. In other words, he's saying, think about it, consider it pure joy. The New Living Translation says it well when it, when, it, when it says this. It says, consider this as an opportunity for joy. When a trial comes into your life, you should consider it as an opportunity for joy. And you might be saying that. I mean, that's still pretty hard, right? When, when I'm suffering... Why would I consider it as an opportunity for joy? The reason why you should consider it as an opportunity of joy is actually found in the second part or in verse 3. But before I get there, I want to I think about this reality of trials. Because you, you may be saying, well, yeah, of course you should consider it a joy. If you're suffering for Christ, you know, when somebody's persecuting you, you should consider it joy because I'm suffering for Christ. But notice the text. He says, consider it all joy when you face trials of various kinds. In other words, when you, when you face any trial, any type of suffering, any type of affliction, you should consider it an opportunity for joy. And this word for trial, it has to do with an external reality, an external reality that's coming upon you to place pressure on you, to, 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 to test you, as it were. And so I just want to stop there before I even go on. And I just want us to consider, when you suffer, do you respond this way? When suffering comes in your life, 
Does joy enter anywhere in your thinking? If it doesn't, that's part of the reason why I would argue that James has to be a distinctly Christian book. You know why? You can't rejoice in suffering apart from faith in Jesus. You have no grounds to be able to rejoice apart from faith in Jesus. For those of you all who don't know Jesus right now, I would just ask, when you suffer, what do you run to? This life, maybe you get 80 years, but it's going to end. And so if, 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 if your desire is just to stop suffering in this life, maybe you live a great life, but you live it for 80 years, and then you're done. You can't respond rightly to this command apart from faith in Jesus Christ. And yet if you do respond, if you do respond by faith in Jesus Christ, notice what it says in verse 3. Notice he gives us the basis, the reason for why he's saying you should count it all joy. He says, for you know that, testing, that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. The reason why you can count it joy when suffering comes into your life is because you recognize what God is using the suffering to accomplish in your life. Say that again. The reason why you can consider it an opportunity for joy when suffering comes into your life is because you recognize what God is using that suffering to do in your life. He gives us the basis for, for rejoicing. It's that we know that God is using something, this suffering in our life to do something better than, than, than what the suffering may seem. And this, this reality of testing. When he, when he says testing, it's, it's testing your faith. Testing is actually a different word from the trial mentioned in the last verse. Testing here has something to do with refining or proving something's worth. It's the same word that we see in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 7, when it says that, that your faith is being tested as, as by fire. It's, it's this reality of you have true and real faith, and God uses trials to then test and prove and purify that faith so that you would come out loving and looking more and more like Christ. And so, beloved, when you suffer, that's what God is doing. And I just want to pause here because I can imagine for some of you all who are in the midst of suffering, you're not as concerned about what God is doing. You're concerned why he's doing it. And I can't answer that question. Nobody can answer that question. No one apart from God himself can tell you why this particular suffering in this particular way at this particular time. But that's exactly why God refines our faith is because though he doesn't give you the why, he wants you to trust him and in, 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 in what he's doing. Though he doesn't tell you exactly why he's doing what he's doing, he wants you to rest secure in the fact that he is good and faithful and wise and trustworthy as he does what he's doing. And if we would even just do a small survey of the book of James, you see, you see James is rich with allusions to the character and purposes of God. Look down at verse 5. 
says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously. Who is God? He is the generous giver of wisdom and grace to those who ask. Jump back down to, uh, to verse 13. Talking about temptation, it says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. We, we know that God is holy, and God will not tempt you. He may test you, but he will never tempt you to sin. What an amazing thing. When something comes, I mean, in our day and age, right? I, I remember I was sitting around with some guys, and they, I don't think they knew the Lord, and, and they were talking about women walking by, and, and you know, God is trying to tempt me. Like, no, that's not God trying to tempt you. That's your flesh. God will never tempt you. He's trustworthy in that way. Look down to verse 17. Every good and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. God is the giver of every good gift. I love Psalm 145 verse 9 where it says, The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. There is not one being on this earth who cannot say that God is not good and God has not shown them mercy. Even if they're not a Christian, they have still received goodness and mercy from God. And then do you see what it said at the end? There's no shadow or variation due to change. The same God yesterday is the same God today, and he is the same God forevermore. What is true about God a thousand years ago is true about God today, and it will be true about God in an infinity and affinities from now. And what a comfort that we can take in our souls knowing that the God who we are called to trust and rest in does not change. He is good. He is generous. He is faithful. He will not tempt you, but he will bring trials into your life to test and refine your faith. And so when trials come into your life, do you think this way? If you don't, you can begin to see the importance of why James wants to give us this word. He's writing to Jewish Christians who are no longer living in Israel and they are experiencing all types of suffering and hardships. And so let us not think that this is written from a glib pastor who's just giving some wayward command. No, this is a man who knows exactly what he's doing and who is talking to a people who are under immense suffering. And his point is to say, when you suffer, these are the things that I want you to consider and to have going through your minds. As we think about suffering, as we think about this text, it says, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. I love this word, produces. It means that when God places the weight of suffering and trials on your life, he places them in your life in order to produce something. And as we'll see in the next point, in order for it to produce the thing that it's supposed to produce, you have to submit to God's trials and afflictions in your life. 
One of the reasons why we don't grow the way we should is because when we suffer, we do everything we can to get out from under the suffering. Instead of praying that God wouldn't necessarily change the suffering, but that he would change the way we think about our suffering. One, one person says we oftentimes pray for a change in situations, but, he, but we often need to pray for a change of perspective. You see, we're oftentimes viewing suffering the wrong way, and that contributes to how much we suffer. I also want to pause here because there are different types of suffering. And there will be different responses in the midst of that suffering. Many of you know that um, in January, I lost my mother. And, and, and that was probably one of the hardest seasons of suffering that I've had to endure. And yet, I also want to stand here, and, and I'm thinking particularly of those, Brother Gene and, and Tyler and Seth, who've lost their loved ones recently. One of the things that I regret about my season of suffering is that I didn't grieve as I ought to have. And I recognize that grieving will come in waves over time, and you'll grieve the loss of a loved one, particularly a mother or father, for many, many years. There are those initial moments where you can do what I did, which is get really busy and not try to think about how much it hurt, or you can run to God with the grief and let him comfort and minister to your soul. And so I would say to you, particularly those who are dealing with the grief of losing a loved one, grieve well. And I want to say to a body that if you see that brother or sister, you should ask them questions. You, you should ask them to reminisce about the person that they've lost, to think about what are the joys, what, what are the things that you remember most to really help them come to a place where they're grieving and giving that grief to the Lord. Yes, we're called to weep with those who weep, and yes, there's a place for silence. But, but I think the ability to walk with a brother and sister and help press them into that grief because we know that God is using that to draw them to himself, to comfort them, to conform them to the image and likeness of Christ. I, I just think we would be such a better body if we were willing to come in and do some of those types of things. For others of you, maybe you're dealing with, let's say, the, the reality of infertility. You've been praying and asking the Lord for children, and the Lord has not seen, seen fit to give you children. I would say this. We, we must be very careful as we pray for God's good gift to assume that, that God must give us good gifts. What we oftentimes assume when we're praying for such a good gift like children is that God must give us these things, and when he doesn't, we begin to doubt his goodness and his faithfulness and his character. And yet the good gift of children is but the extension and overflow of God's goodness and kindness to each and every one of us. And so as we're thinking about what, what is it that God could be doing as he's withholding this good gift of children, well, one thing he could be doing is pressing you to trust and rest that he's good even if you don't get the gift. 
Even if he doesn't do all the things that we would like him to do, God is still good and he's faithful and he loves us. And here's the thing about suffering. You, you can't learn the lesson unless you're in it. And so what it looks like to count it all joy when God doesn't give me kids is to say that this is just simply an opportunity for me to find rest and contentment and God and God alone. And God is able to comfort me and to encourage me even if he withholds the good gift that, that I am desperately and eagerly praying for. And so I just wonder, beloved, do we often think like this? It, can, can we say like the psalmist, whom have I on earth? And there is nothing on earth that I desire except for you. Is, is that our God? And I think what James is trying to instill in these believers is that that is our God, and that is the God that we should run to and press in. I, I forgot earlier to define this reality of joy, and joy is a settled contentment in every situation. Or another, another author has said that it's an unnatural reaction of deep, steady, and adulterated, unadulterated, thankful trust in God. And so what is joy in the midst of suffering? Lord, I'm, I'm grieving the loss of a loved one. God, I'm really praying for children and you withhead this gift. God, I'm a father and a husband and I just lost my job. What is joy? It's an unshakable contentment and confidence that God is who he says he is and, and, and he will take care and comfort and love and provide for his children. And it's this, this holy resolve that I will continue to press into that God and love him and trust him no matter what comes my way. You see how different that is? When we, kind of, when we think about joy, we usually think about happiness. But oftentimes, there is a place for rejoicing and happiness. But oftentimes, that's not what the Bible means when it says joy. Think about, think about the phrase, sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Does that mean that whenever I'm sorrowful, I have a big smile on my face? Or does it mean that in the midst of my sorrow, there's a contentment and a trust and a, and a resolute desire to love and press into and honor and glorify God. You, you see how radical that is? You see how unique that is? And that it can only come from Christ. My second point. My second point is this, in verse four. As he says, and let steadfastness, let faith produce steadfastness in you. It's, he continues by, by repeating himself. And let steadfastness have its full effect. And then he gives you both a positive and a negative reason why he wants this steadfastness to have its effect. Because here's the deal. Steadfastness isn't, isn't the end goal. The isn't end goal isn't that we would be a bunch of people who, man, I know how to suffer. I mean, you talk about suffer, I can suffer. It isn't that we would pull up our bootstraps and be really good at going through hard things. No, the end goal of suffering and steadfastness, which it produces, is Christ-like character. And so look at what it says. And let steadfastness have its full effect. Or in other words, let steadfastness do its work. 
I remember when I was a kid, or not even a kid, I, I remember this too as a kid, but I remember when I was uh, at the old building, we had the intern house right across the street, and I remember one day we were having a big gathering, and, and I was, I, I was going to try to cook some rice. And so, uh, you know, we got a bunch of people. I'm a single guy. I used to, Josh Austin had this thing. If you don't know Josh Austin, he's a great guy. But the one bone I have to pick with Josh is that, man, whenever he cooks, he's just cooking straight vegetables. And I always give him a hard time, like, bro, give me some meat. You know, like, I need some meat in there. And so anyway, I think Josh was cooking his vegetables. And I was like, all right, I'm going to make some rice to go along with these vegetables. And then I realized, man, I, I don't really know how to make rice. We didn't have a rice cooker, you know, so I wasn't, I couldn't just dump it in there and set it and forget it. I, I had to actually get out a pot, put rice. And so I called uh, Daji, Daji Perez, so Pastor Ramney, who's a church planter in the Bronx. Uh, they were still here at the time. And I called her, I was like, hey, hey Daji, like, help me, what, what do I do? Help me get this rice together. And so she's like, all right, this is what you do. Put your rice in and then put the water about an inch over top of it. Put some salt and some oil in there. And then she was like, put the top on and then don't touch it. And I remember I was on the phone and she came off really strong when she said, don't touch it. She's like, don't touch it, like leave it alone. Let it sit because good rice, it needs the heat and the pressure. It needs all of that. All those juices can soak into the rice. It can soak up all the water. In order to have good rice, you need the heat and the pressure. And if you keep checking it, all you're doing is taking away the heat and the pressure. And what James is saying right here is that when you, when you suffer, don't take away the heat and the pressure. Don't, don't try to get out from under the suffering. Don't, don't try to find a way to wiggle out of it. Submit yourselves to God in the midst of the suffering because he's using that suffering to make you more like Jesus. That's what the text says. Notice what it says. Let it have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete lacking and nothing. These words, perfect and complete, it, it means whole. It, it, it's, 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 its focus is on Christian character. It's, it's saying, let the steadfastness have its effect so that it can produce in you a Christ-like character, a mature character that honors and glorifies God. And so if you would be mature, the, the main way God is going to work that maturity in your life is through suffering. And that's why he uses intentionally the word perfect. And you should respond, well, nobody's perfect. And then I think James would respond, and that is exactly why we live a life of suffering. You will continually suffer because God is continually refining you making you mature, making you whole, helping your default to be when I am suffering and struggling, I run to my God, I run to my Savior and find my rest and my host and my peace in Him. And you may be saying, well, that's stupid. Why, why, do, why do I want to keep suffering? Why, why, why should I do that? Well, is it not true that to be a Christian is to trust in and identify in one who the text says was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Is it not true that to be a Christian is to follow after the one who it says he learned obedience through what he suffered? And is it not true 
that the greatest display of suffering that the world has ever seen was the suffering of our Lord when he lived and bled and died on a cross so that you and I could be forgiven. Isn't it true that the reason why God can show you his goodness and his mercy and his generosity and his faithfulness is because Christ has paid the penalty and has paved the way so that God could lavish all of his goodness and his mercy and his grace and his kindness and his generosity upon our souls. Apart from Christ, you could not experience the depths of God's goodness and his mercy and his grace. And so to not embrace suffering in the midst of, in the midst of trials is actually to show that we have failed to really understand the depths and the clarity of the gospel. To trust in Christ is to suffer as Christ did. And so, beloved, as we think about being gospel-centered, one of the clearest expressions of that gospel-centeredness will be our ability to trust in God, to rejoice in Him, to boast in His goodness and His faithfulness as He takes us through suffering. And my prayer is that God would equip us to really think about this and to live it out in our daily lives. As I'm running out of time, I, I want to quickly just give you four points of application as we think about this text. As we think about this reality that trials come into our lives, and when those trials come, we're called to count it as an opportunity for joy. And we're called to submit ourselves to those trials and let the, the steadfastness, the endurance that God is working in our lives come to full effect that we may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And I, I want to give you four ways to think about and apply this truth to our lives. The first one is that, as I've already mentioned, these trials and the steadfast that they produce is just a clear sign of our union with Jesus. And so, beloved, know that when you're suffering, it is one of God's chief ways of showing that you identify with Christ. I love the passage in Romans, right? Suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, proven character, and character produces hope. Why? Because as I suffer and grow in endurance, and then my character begins to change, I have hope because I look more like Jesus. And if you've been a Christian any amount of time, you can look back over your life and see how your sufferings and trials and afflictions have shaped you. You can also say that if it was not for the grace of God, where would I be? And yet here's the thing, the longer you're in, in Christ, the more you can look back and say, man, if I would have experienced this trial 10 years ago, it would have killed me. You know, I think of some, some kids, you know, sometimes, some of your, your, uh, your five-year-olds, you go into the store and they get hungry and they just have a meltdown because they can't have Cheetos. Well, well, hang in there, parents, because the day will come where your child will, will be grown and no longer will they have meltdowns because they can't have Cheetos. They will be able to sit there and wait until they're able to get food. And such is the Christian life. The trials of your early Christian life pale in comparison to the trials that you will experience later on in life, and yet you will find yourself with an endurance and ability to, uh, to, to stand in the midst of them. And that is something that should give you great hope because it identifies you with Christ. Second truth. 
I don't think we think about this, but these trials call for growth and emotional maturity. I think one of the most untalked about realities of, of, of Christianity in our day is our lack of emotional maturity. And when I say that, I don't just mean the ability, like when people come unraveled because when life comes, I think emotional maturity is on both sides. Because, because remember, James is trying to, he's trying to say there should be right thinking according to the situations and circumstances in your life. And there are some of you who when the slightest thing comes into your life, you fall apart. You, you just crumble. You immediately doubt the goodness of God. God does not love you. He is no longer faithful. And you are just tempted to walk away from the faith any time a trial comes into your life. Well, what is that? There's a need to grow in emotional maturity. And when I say that, I mean the ability to take my thoughts captive, to identify wrong ways of thinking, and apply the right truths to that wrong way of thinking. Or at the very least, the ability to realize I'm not thinking right, let me call a brother and sister and ask them to speak truth into my life because I know if I don't have truth right now, I will go off the rails. There's a level of maturity that comes to doing that. But there's also another side of, of emotional maturity. There's some of you who think that godliness is displayed by your stoicness and your ability to be unmoved about absolutely anything. I think that's emotional immaturity. Because what is happening is that your emotions are not responding to, to things the way they, not your emotions, your thinking is not responding and leading your emotions the way it should be. And what I mean by that is this. The Bible calls us to weep with those who weep. And it is not a virtue of our society that we can struggle to weep with those who weep. And what is that? I think that's a failure to think rightly about the circumstances and let that thinking dictate our emotions so that there's a response of weeping with those with whom we should weep. And so we should pray, beloved, that God would grow our emotional maturity. Third thing, if you aren't sure what to do in the midst of suffering, you should ask. I don't know if you noticed it, but that's exactly where the text goes. Look at, look at verse 5 in James. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. And it's no coincidence that the verse right after that talks about asking with faith. Because here's this reality. Lord, give me wisdom, but I really doubt that you're kind of good. And because I don't know if you're really good, are you really going to give me wisdom? And the Bible says you, 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 should, you shouldn't expect to get anything. That's not faith. Instead, it's, Lord, I need wisdom. And I, your word says that you are good and generous and faithful. And I am struggling right now even to believe that. But, Lord, would you help me? Would you meet me? Would you comfort me? Would you give me wisdom? That is a completely different prayer. And so if you're suffering and you don't know the right response, you don't know what, what should I do, you should be pleading with the Lord for his wisdom. Lastly, wish I had another 45 minutes to walk through this. But in 1 Peter chapter 5, in uh, verse 7, I believe, is, is one of my favorite verses in the scripture. And in that verse, it says that we are to humble ourselves. I think it's actually chapter 5, verses 5 and 6. We are to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God, for at the proper time he will exalt you. And then it says, casting 
All of our anxiety is upon him because he cares for us. What do you do when you're suffering? You humble yourself. There's not a person in this room, and I, please hear this with all the tenderness and all of the awareness of the depth of our suffering, but we are sinners, and there is not a person in this room who suffers perfectly. And in times of suffering, oftentimes God can use that to, 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 to show areas of unbelief and rebellion and ungodliness in our life. And instead of fleeing from God and shaking our fist at God and getting angry at God, if we would just humble ourselves under his good and mighty hand, he promises that in due time, he will exalt us. And you're like, well, how do I do that? Verse six, you cast all of your anxieties and all of your burdens upon him. The saint who's, who's not praying when they're suffering is the saint who is not suffering in a way that honors the Lord. If you are not praying desperately in the midst of your suffering, you are not suffering in a way that honors the Lord. And so if we would just humble ourselves, trusting in his goodness, trusting in his faithfulness, trusting in his kind care for us, and cast our burdens upon him. Give him everything. Give him, God, I want to shake myself my fist, and I know it's so foolish. Help me not to do it. He can take that. Give him that. We, we would see more and more Christ-likeness worked in each and every one of our souls, and we would see the gospel of the glorious, of our God, glorious God and Savior Jesus Christ shine all the more brightly in a watching world. That is my hope, and that is my prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. I pray that you would help us to obey this, this verse, that we would count it all joy as we endure various trials, knowing that, that the testing of our faith produces steadfastness. God, give us the strength and the grace to let steadfastness have its effect, that we may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. God, conform us into the image and likeness of your Son. Help us to love and trust your goodness and your faithfulness as we suffer. And would you do it all for the glory of your great name. Amen.